The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here and There. Practice Everywhere. So, here we all are, coming uh, close to the end of our mostly silent intensive uh, practice period here. Soon to be taking uh, yourself, taking your practice out there, wherever there is for each of you. Which actually for most of you will entail a much longer period of intensive practice with the possibility being that wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that many of us come to the end of a retreat uh, with some thoughts and some feelings that aren't really so dissimilar to those that we uh, came into retreat with. For many people, though there's very possibly a a feeling of excitement and maybe readiness to go into an extended period of intensive practice, just before it's time to enter in, there may be some feelings of, well, I'm just not really quite finished out here. Just a few more days or, um, well, another week, and then I, I could really, uh, if I had another week, I could, I could really get done what needs to be done out here, and then I'll be ready uh, to go in, to go into retreat. And... It seems that um, some of us, at least, have some similar uh, thoughts when it's time to come out of retreat. Maybe an excitement and a readiness to go back out into the larger world. And yet maybe such uh, thoughts as, well, maybe just a little more time, a couple more days. Some people might even be feeling, oh, a couple of more weeks, and some of you might even be feeling, oh, another month would be great. (laughs) Just to get done, uh, you know, with this. And then I'll be finished. (laughs) And then I'll be ready to come out. And then I'll be ready to go back out there. And sometimes on either end, the um, going into retreat and the coming out of retreat, there might be some degree of reluctance, some degree of resistance, maybe some fear of the unknown, or fear of the seeming known, or maybe just essentially fear of change, fear of ending one way and entering into another way. So you might check into your own heart and mind and see if there might be some of these kinds of thoughts, some of these kinds of feelings. Maybe some similar conditioned patterns within your own mind and heart that are coming up now at the end of this retreat that you may have experienced as you were preparing to come here, or that you may have felt at the onset of the retreat. And of course, we might not feel any anxiety in any direction, entering into or coming out of retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel a very clean, 
clear, open readiness and happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing, the next phase, the next form that life will take. At a retreat that I taught some years ago now, one person described her experience to me of coming out of retreat as feeling, she said she, was, she felt like she was descending, kind of landing as she was coming out of retreat. She said she was feeling the force of gravity. She felt like she was coming back to earth. That was her description. There's a beautiful piece um, that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swikert regarding his experience of traveling in outer space. And so I'd like to uh, share that with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes. Because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a, si- there's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to this is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for humans. And you look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there. And they are like you. They are you, and somehow you represent them. You're up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other life forms on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. And of course, there is change. Change about the happenings that have happened during the retreat and what's about to happen, which of course you have no idea, even if you think you know. (laughs) And so reflecting on the supports that are available to you as we begin to make the change out of retreat life and into the larger life in the world. 
One change being the pace of life. At least outwardly, it appears and uh, appears to and feels like life moves a lot faster outside of an intensive retreat setting, outside of this meditation center. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our days of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind and heart. How quickly and how incessantly things change all around us, even in this slow pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom is really a great support and a great protection as we make the change from retreat practice into practice in the world. Reconnecting with the larger world in a day, its day-to-dayness or the moment-to-momentness in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily life. And we've had at least some taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change. And even though we try, we really can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration and mindfulness developed over these five and a half days, we've had some glimpse into whatever it is that we experience in the body and the mind and the heart, that any of these experience, experiences or all of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, whatever it is, changes quite quickly. Or it just simply disappears. And even though you may not have thought about it in this way, you experienced it. These tastes, this understanding has a very deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make, more connection and clarity in our relationship to others. More clarity in what's important and what's appropriate. What's wholesome and what's really, truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is another change from here to there. Life in retreat offers really very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, we eat, we do our yogi job, we sleep. We sit around a lot. We walk around a fair amount. You've spoken just a little every few days. And within this container of simplicity, you've been supported to uh, mindfully develop a depth and a clarity of a focused attention. You've been supported to develop 
and mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body, in the mind, and in the heart. You've been invited to see and to know. Is the mind, the heart, opening? Opening to? Is it connecting? Is it receiving the breath? The breath at the Anapana spot? Or is it spaced out? Or is it caught up in thoughts? Or is it caught up in some some experience. With all of this practice and all of this learning, bringing us closer to seeing and to knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, what brings calm and joy, what brings a sense of well-being. Really, we've been learning to recognize and respect and really kindly care about all of these cycles within our mind, our heart, and our body. Cycles that all of us experience. So this seeing and this knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we connect with the larger world. We're all really so similar. No matter who we are, where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color, our myriad experiences, Really, as some of you, or probably all of you maybe by now have heard me say, we're just variations on themes, all of us. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and to know through a period of intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, It affects our actions. Seeing into our own heart, seeing into our own mind, affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and the habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. There's the possibility for any of us of engaging the refuges and the precepts that Pat spoke about the first evening of our retreat, engaging it as part of our maybe our daily practice, maybe beginning our day chanting them to ourselves. This can be a very powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts and our words and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts um, that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza from the Green Gulch Zen Farm. And I'd like to share this with you because it's really particularly relevant to 
the daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the three treasures being the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, um, as probably for some of you at least, and maybe coming for some of you who are new to practice, over my years of practice, um, in the simplicity of a retreat setting many, many times, I've been inspired and motivated to really simplify my own life, to live my daily life in retreat, and out of retreat in a way that serves, that really supports uh, this process of the purification of the heart, of the mind, which is intimately related to the process of liberation. And sometimes this happens through the conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction, for instance. And as practice deepens, there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and more naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process this awakening process that we're learning and that you may have already committed yourself to, some of you. And it's really very often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So, a very mundane personal example. There was a time when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn on the radio. And at some point, I began to notice it as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. So I begin driving somewhere, and I'm not exaggerating, my hand would automatically start to come up and begin to move towards the radio knob. I mean, the force of habit is really strong as... I'm sure you know. So then I'd mindfully bring my hand back down again. And at some point in this process, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And that was a turning point. When I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio, then there was a choice available. To or not to. So, looking at another change, 
in this simple and a quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days for you, maybe some big events for you, that ordinarily are maybe somewhat mundane, actually, at least one of them. How about the big event of the midday meal? What are we going to have for lunch today? And as you're going to check out today's lunch, you're thinking, what are we going to have for lunch tomorrow? Haven't even had today's yet. Or as you're eating today's, oh, I wonder what we're going to have tomorrow. Becomes quite a can become quite a huge event in a retreat setting. How about the big event of having a group practice meeting, group practice interview? For some of you, that might have been anticipatory anyways, a huge event, maybe during it as well. Some big days, big events. That you may not have anticipated ahead of time as being a big event when you were going to be in retreat. A poem by a wandering Japanese Buddhist poet who actually died about six or seven years ago, whose name uh, was Nanao Sakaki. And he calls this poem a big day. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with a neighbor. The sun goes down. A big day. Many years ago, Nanao used to spend a a fair amount of time up at the Lama Foundation, which is just about 30 minutes north of where I live in Taos, New Mexico. And he'd show up at Lama with his small knapsack and his sleeping bag, and he'd stay at the Lama Foundation for a couple of days, and uh, they were always really delighted to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with just this, nothing more, Uh, nothing more than he'd arrived there with. And he'd often be gone for a couple of weeks at a time. And then he'd be back again at Lama. Maybe stay a couple days, maybe go out again, or just stay a few days and then leave and go somewhere else. Uh, A very dear friend of mine who was the coordinator at the Lama Foundation during those years when Nanao was visiting, would come visiting and hiking out in the mountains, um, told me a story about um, one of the times when Nanao had come in from his uh, mountain uh, adventure uh, for a day or two, come into the Lama Foundation. And he asked her and another friend if they would like to um, come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. Well, my friend said that it was, she was just thrilled with this invitation because it was something very special, something that had never been offered before. So, she, uh, on the appointed day and time, uh, my friend and uh, the other invitee uh, found their way out uh, to Nanao's camping spot by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there wasn't any food ready or no food in view for dinner. Nanao had told them not to bring anything, uh, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. So my friends said that they thought that maybe they'd made a mistake, that maybe this was the wrong day. But Nanao greeted them. He was just delighted to see them, and he greeted them very warmly and welcomed them quite heartily, she said, and then said, well, now let's go out and find dinner. So my friend said that they walked and they picked and they dug various wild foods. And they came back and they built a fire and cooked what needed cooking. And she said they had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or weeks at a time with almost nothing and 
come back strong and healthy and very happy. Someone once said in an interview, or spoke in an interview, about the simplicity of life in retreat as having a good taste, she said. We taste it, this good taste. And we take it with us. And it wends our way into our life in many small ways and sometimes in some big ways. And of course, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home life, our family life, our work life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And often often we do this little by little as our practice deepens in and outside of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do, in the way that we spend time with partners and family and friends. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, almost every aspect of our life. We truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from this simplicity of retreat life. And of course, for pretty much all of us, there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we certainly must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another really beneficial and effect on life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity and relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in a retreat, in practice, retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know slowly, slowly, and you've all had some taste of this, we come to know more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves beginning to let go of some of our old habits, old habituated unskillful ways of being and doing. We find ourselves then connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance, more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. And we find that, in fact, we have more energy and we have more time available for our life to more and more directly and clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there a great support, and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey that we're on. So considering our whole life as our practice, that's a big consideration, but it's a worthy one. Considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday life? It's really a most essential and important question. 
And of course, the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a clear, focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all the dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. And we can most certainly find many moments throughout our day when we can just very simply bring our attention to the sensations of the breath or to the body moving in almost any circumstance, in almost any activity. So from this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really, all of the conditions, all of the relationships in our life are wonderful mirrors for our practice. All of the joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes. All that we experience in life in retreat, because we've experienced all of these things in retreat, and in life outside of retreat, really all of it, the mirrors for our practice. There was a woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel a number of years ago. There's quite a large Buddhist Sangha in Israel. And she had, long before I met her, um, lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. And she told me a story of her time in this uh, community in France There's really a wonderful mirror uh, of a particular and difficult situation being the perfect practice. She said that in this community where she was living in France, there was an old man who was very difficult. She said he was a very difficult, irascible old fellow. She said he was quite messy and argumentative, and he wouldn't cooperate, and he wouldn't help with things, and basically he didn't get along with anybody else in the community. She said that no one really liked him very much. And she also said that he himself really didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. And he tried for a long time to stay in the community, but it was very, very difficult for him, as it was for others as well. And it was so difficult, she said that he finally left and he went to Paris. He said he couldn't bear it anymore. But Gurdjieff followed him to Paris, and then he tried to convince this man to um, return to the community. But the man said, no, he just couldn't do it. It was just much too hard to be there. So Gurdjieff offered him a monthly stipend to come back, which the man actually couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. And so he did return. And when he arrived back into the community... She said that everyone in the community was just aghast. And she said they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there. (laughs) Because they themselves had to pay to live in the community. (laughs) So Gurdjieff called a meeting. And she said he listened to everybody's complaints and whining and carrying on. And she said, and then he just laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. (laughs) 
the conditions in our lives and all of the people in our lives are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread. Yeast for the purification of the heart, the purification of the mind. They're yeast for our awakening. They're yeast for our liberation. There's one teaching amongst the 84,000 that the Buddha offered. It's said that he offered 84,000 teachings over his years of teaching. And he uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings. The four divine abidings, just as a reminder, metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. Each of the sons, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of these divine abidings. Well, I only have three sons, but they've managed really to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can often be some of our best teachers. Just simply them being who they are, through them being who they are, what they need from us, and what they give to us, and what they show us. So an example, personal example. My uh, two oldest sons, who are identical twins, and they'll be uh, 49 years old next June, They continue to show me, they continue to teach me a relationship that's very rare. They're each other's best friends. And although when they were little guys, they would fight with each other, of course, as children do. But over all these years, they've never talked about each other or never talked to each other in negative or judgmental ways. And they never, really never, put each other down. No matter what one or the other one is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or has not done, no matter how the other's life is going. And what I find really also interesting and instructive and amazing, is that they're not each other's keeper. They're not codependent. They've never really been disrespectful with each other. I think it's really quite a rare friendship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it. And I learn from it over and over again. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal some aspect of the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha. He said, As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. And then, Like a deer, find a quiet place to graze. Seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. In a poem, one of my current favorites, it's... uh, from the Turkish, written by, I'm not sure if I pronounced the name properly, Edip Kansever, and the translator of this poem was Richard Tillinghast. The poem is called Table. A man filled with the gladness of living, 
put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window. Sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind, what he wanted to do in life. He put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine, the man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness. His hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. And the man kept piling things on. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path, is really first and foremost a focused and clear, concentrated attention that's grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And it's true, as some people ask, it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind to whatever degree you've developed it over these days of retreat. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect to a larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect with a larger world. And although the same degree and the same depth of concentration and mindfulness isn't usually totally sustained outside of the retreat setting, the concentration and the mindfulness, the capacities that have been developed along with the multi-dimensional facets of understanding, of insight, of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in various ways in this retreat. All of it is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness and concentration and the continuing blossoming of wisdom are always available to us. We have to just keep practicing. Many years ago at a a two-month retreat that I was sitting with one of my Burmese teachers, Sayadaw Upandita, and two other monks, I had a very brief conversation with one of the monks at the end of the retreat. And I asked him if he had any advice for me Uh, that he might give me around taking practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. And that's all he said. Pretty good advice, actually. There are some particular ways that I and others have found uh, to be very helpful in bringing a simple and yet direct and immediate concentrated mindful attention into our lives as a whole. And I'm sure many of you have 
your own uh, particular discoveries around doing that. One suggestion is that at the end of each hour of the day, take just one or two minutes to simply stop and be still and simply connect with the breath at the Anapana spot, at the touching point. Very simple. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very direct, focused, mindful time. With each of these moments having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our practice into our daily life is to remember at moments during the day to touch into the physical sensations through contact. So simple, just the feet touching the floor or the ground, the bottom touching the chair, hands touching each other. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened every time we do this. And I think really the only hard thing about doing these mini meditations, these very brief meditation sessions, is to remember to do them. That's the hard part, to remember to do them. I know some people who put um, little sticky notes to themselves around their home and uh, in their workplace to remind them to check in. So, like, for instance, a note on the bathroom mirror, breathe. (laughs) You are breathing, but (laughs) sometimes we forget. (laughs) A little stand-up note maybe on your desk at work or at home, still breathing. Or maybe metta now. Or just maybe simply here and now. There was a a fellow um, quite a number of years ago when I was the resident teacher here for staff, there was a fellow on staff here at IMS who worked in the front office. And um, he had a little stand-up note on his desk that said, buttocks. It was reminding him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then. The director of the forest refuge up the hill here, he's programmed his computer to sound, uh, to ring a mindfulness bell, a very lovely dinging mindfulness bell, just once, ding, every 45 minutes to remind him to check in to his breath. He said it really works. It's really helpful. Walking meditation can really be a very important uh, and very powerful, actually, aspect of our practice in the world. an important aspect of continuing to connect and to strengthen concentrated attention and mindfulness. Many of us walk at least um, a few miles going from place to place throughout a day, certainly throughout a week. And we can make some, very purposefully make some of this walking time practice time. When I did live here at IMS, I lived here for about four and a half years as resident teacher for staff. My workroom and and my living space, my home, completely home, was up on the second floor in the same room that we have all been in there, in my home, uh, with our group meetings. That was where I lived. And because I did many practice interviews with staff, and I had lots of meetings in that room. I really didn't have very much time during the day to do walking meditation. So at one point I decided that every time I would go up and down the stairs, because I had to go up and down the stairs to get 
food, for one thing, and to go outside occasionally. Um, Every time I would go up and down the stairs, that would be my walking practice time. And once I decided to do this, most days I did it quite a bit. And at one point, a staff staff member uh, came in for his weekly practice interview. And he was obviously uh, quite agitated. And with a, a fair amount of difficulty, he told me that he was quite upset because he said I was ignoring him. And he said that he felt abandoned by me. And he said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. <laughs> and he was wondering if I was angry with him. So I told him that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time. And that I certainly had abandoned, had not abandoned him, and nor was I at all angry with him. But that I was just practicing as hard as I could. Well, that totally, in about two minutes, changed his attitude. And he was very happy for me and told me he thought it was a great idea. People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. And many of you do, I know. And we certainly can see the and feel the benefits of this, as many of you have mentioned, in a retreat setting. If you're not connected, at least sometimes with a group, even just a group of two or three people, at least once in a while, check in where you live and check around and see if there is a group. If there isn't, start one. Maybe just asking a couple of people, two or three people who you know that meditator that might like to learn to meditate to come and sit once a week or once every other week. You can sit together and maybe read something, read something out loud about the teachings, about the practice. Maybe listen to a a Dhamma talk on a CD. Taking turns each week is a nice way to do it. Who chooses the reading or who chooses what you're going to listen to? And then have some discussion about it discussion about what you've listened to, what you've read, and some discussion about your practice. And it also can be helpful at times to maybe pick a theme that lasts for a few weeks, something to focus on. The Buddha, in conversation with Ananda, who was one of his chief disciples, spoke about the tremendous importance of connection with spiritual friends. The Venerable Ananda, in speaking with the Buddha, said, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda by saying, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, this companionship, this association with the good. So use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is really one of the greatest arts in life. Really perhaps the greatest. And it can take place anywhere, anytime, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go out into the larger world, if we're patient, determined in our practice, it's inevitable, really inevitable, that calm, tranquility, and joy increases. It's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial 
and compassionate life increases. And another poem from Nanao Sakaki. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) So I'd like to close the talk this evening with a poem and a brief reading, uh, part of a an essay, a brief essay from a book. The poem is by Native American poet Joy Harjo. And she calls this poem Eagle Poem. To pray you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, river, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we're made of all this, and breathe, knowing we're truly blessed, because we're born and die soon within a true circle of motion. Like eagle rounding out the morning inside us, we pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And closing the evening with you from an essay called Bowing from a book by Barry Lopez called Arctic Dreams. Gleaming gulls fly over. In the shore lead are phalaropes with their twig-like legs. In the distance I can see flocks of old squaw against the sky and a few cormorants, a patch of shadow that could be several thousand crested auklets too far away to know. Out there are whales. I've seen six or eight gray whales as I walked this evening. And the ice, pale as the dove-colored sky. The wind raises the water, surface of the water. Wake of a seal in the shore lead, gone now. I bowed. I bowed to what knows no deliberating legislature or parliament, no religion, no competing theories of economics. An expression of allegiance with the mystery of life. I looked out over the Bering Sea and brought my hands folded to the breast of my parka and bowed from the waist deeply toward the north that great strait filled with life, the ice and the water. I held the bow to the pale sulfur sky at the northern rim of the earth. I held the bow until my back ached and my mind was emptied of its categories and designs, its plans and speculations. I bowed before the simple evidence of the moment in my life in a tangible place on earth that was beautiful. When I stood, I thought I glimpsed my own desire. The landscape and the animals were like something found at the end of a dream. The edges of the real landscape became one with the edges of something I had dreamed. But what I had dreamed was only a pattern, some beautiful pattern of light. The continuous work of the imagination, I thought, to bring what is actual together with what is dreamed 
is an expression of human evolution. The conscious desire is to achieve a state, even momentarily, that like light is unbounded, nurturing, suffused with wisdom and creation, a state in which one has absorbed that very darkness which before was the perpetual sign of defeat. Whatever world that is, it lies far ahead. But its outline, its vague outline, is clear in the landscape. And upon this, one can actually hope we will find our way. I bowed again, deeply toward the north, and turned south to retrace my steps over the dark cobbles to the home where I was staying. I was full of appreciation for all that I had seen. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma and for practicing the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.